Welcome to Good Christophian Talks. I'm Levi. And I'm Chris. And I'm Brian. Thank you for joining us this week. On this podcast, we select one talk a week to help us get the Bible in our daily newsfeed. We post a new episode at the start of each week with a short intro beforehand to kind of set the stage for the talk you're about to listen to. And now, let's talk more about this week's talk. Today's talk is an exhortation by Brother Carl Perry that was given at the Cumberland Ecclesia in Adelaide on September 25th of this year. Um, His title was, Men Ought Always to Pray and Not to Faint, which is a quote from Luke 18, um, verse 1, and his exhortation is based in Luke 18 here, uh, kind of, it's kind of a two-part exhortation, first about the parable of the persistent widow, and the second about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and he ties them both together as you know, pointing out the theme that the Lord Jesus is, is making and kind of running through about the power of prayer. Uh, Brother Carl makes the point that we sometimes can be dismayed in our prayers. Uh, we all feel like we don't pray enough. And, um, and these, these parables kind of give some purpose uh, to our prayers. I very much enjoy this. I think it was exactly something I needed to hear. Um, and it reminded me of... Um, uh, the passage in Isaiah, give not the Lord rest uh, until he has established uh, his city. And I think uh, that was a beautiful, uh, yeah, a beautiful exhortation. Um, he, I think the parable of persistent widow is, is a confusing parable, um, and he kind of reads it directly on its face um, with what the Lord said it would be about, um, and then pulls what he calls her determination uh, into uh, tying that with the attitude of the tax collector in his prayer, and that those are our examples, to be uh, determined and humble. Um, so I very much enjoyed this talk, and I'm thankful uh, to the brother who sent it to me. Thank you for uh, that, and thank you all of you who send in uh, suggestions. It is It makes it so much easier for us uh, to, to listen to talks that we know uh, someone already thinks uh, is good for the show. Uh, so thank you, and please keep doing that. Our email address is goodchristadelphiantalks at gmail.com. Um, But for now, here is Men Ought Always to Pray and Not to Faint by Brother Carl Perry. Thank you, Brother David, and good morning, my dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to remember the work of salvation that our Lord has achieved, God working in him for our salvation, we wish to take a few thoughts of our Lord this morning based on the first couple of parables from Luke chapter 18. We want to talk about prayer. And we approach the subject of prayer, brethren and sisters, with a great deal of reverence, don't we? Because we are dealing with the way that we communicate with Almighty God. And I think in this subject, all of us feel very inadequate when we think of our own prayers and the way in which we so often neglect this idea of constant prayer. And sometimes we find it very difficult to express ourselves, don't we? You know, we, we, we crave to be like the, the, the great man David who could express wonderful thoughts in his prayers or to express the mind that Apostle Paul had. And in all of that, brethren, since we look at our own feeble attempts and we sometimes feel very embarrassed and dispirited, perhaps, at uh, our lack of being able to communicate with our Heavenly Father. This parable is for us. 
that men ought always to pray and not to faint. It comes in a significant context. The, the Lord has been speaking in the previous chapter about his coming. It had an immediate impact, of course, in relation to the Jews of that time in AD 70, but it also has a wider application to us. For indeed, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And you know, brothers and sisters, the saints, the body of believers, have been waiting 2,000 years for his return. Some of us were baptized 50 years ago, expecting our Lord to return immediately. But time marches on. And one of the great challenges that we have, brothers and sisters, is to persevere in prayer when it appears that our Lord is not answering our prayers for his return. And I think, brothers and sisters, that this parable in that context is definitely for us because it's, it is very easy to become dispirited and discouraged as time just marches on and our Lord is not yet in the earth. It's a parable in which men ought always to pray. And in fact, that word ought in the Greek really means must. It's not an option. It's a necessity. Must pray. And there's, there's a corollary here, isn't there? That, that if we are praying ceaselessly, then this dispirited attitude will then slowly de be diminished. But if we're not people of prayer, then it becomes easy just to give up, to become discouraged. Now, the challenge of that verse 1, brothers and sisters, is always praying. And, and the Greek is well translated. It means ceaselessly, constantly. Now, now, now when you examine that, how, how practically can we be always at prayer? And I think the answer to that question is, is that in the end, it becomes a state of mind. It becomes a a disposition that we need to develop, to have a ready mind, to be conscious of God's presence. And you know, brothers and sisters, in, in, in life, it's, it's that lens, that perspective that we need to have, an awareness of Almighty God's presence. And there are many things that can give us opportunity for a brief prayer. We, we, we may be traveling, we may see a magnificent vista, a wonderful scene. It's an opportunity to give thanks to the creator of heaven and earth. We may experience an act of kindness from a brother or sister, an opportunity to give thanks to God. We may be speaking to somebody about the truth, an opportunity to seek God's blessing. We may be facing trial and temptation. And, and all of these kind of incidents, brethren and sisters, provide a lens through which we can appreciate that Almighty God needs to be drawn into the picture. And, and that's surely the way that we can always be in this state of readiness and prayer. It's not easy to cultivate when you think about that, is it? I mean, we have very busy lives. We're rushing hither and thither. Time marches on, and, and sometimes we don't make opportunities for prayer. Regular, daily prayer takes discipline. It takes a concerted effort. And, and you know, it's, it's a learned experience. The, the disciples came to Jesus after they observing him praying, and they said, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. It can be taught. It can be learned. We just have to have the discipline, and we have to have the opportunity, brethren and sisters, of having that mind of the awareness of God. That is difficult to achieve. I find it difficult to achieve. And, and one of the most difficult aspects is persevering. And sometimes we feel that we're just saying the same things over and over and over again. And there seems to be no answer. 
God is listening. And our Lord understood the need to persevere in prayer. The opposite of that is spiritual fatigue. The Lord calls it fainting. The diaglot says men ought always to pray and not to be weary. The NIV says men ought always to pray and not give up. It's a great temptation, isn't there? Just to give it up. And the, the, the round of our daily life can make us faint and spiritless. The demands of spirituality, the demands of the truth, the demands of the word of God are significant pressures, aren't they? And sometimes we feel it's just too hard. Well, we can't give up, brothers and sisters. And that closeness to God, that, that, that closeness to our Lord is something which needs to be cultivated in our life. Now, to underscore the significance of this remark, he has this rather remarkable parable about the unjust judge. He says in verse 2, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. Now, under the law of Moses, the chief qualification of being a judge was to fear God. In the book of Deuteronomy, it was a specific qualification. The judges had to be aware of the presence of God and fear God. This judge was totally disinterested in religion. Absolutely disinterested. And on the other side of the coin, the record says he feared not man. He had no interest in the people he was supposed to serve. And, and here is the ultimate wickedness of the man, isn't it? The law was irrelevant, God was irrelevant, and he had no point in compassion across the people he served. What kind of judge is this? Why was he even a judge? It must have been surely out of sense of status and power or, or self-promotion. In fact, in verse 6, the Lord calls him unjust. People who don't fear God and have no compassion on their neighbour are unjust in the Lord's assessment. He was not fit to be a judge on any spiritual level. And yet he was appointed by the people to represent them in judgment. Bizarre situation, but, but it, it, it grabs our attention. He's not the kind of judge that anyone would really have any confidence in. And in verse 3, there was a widow in that city. A widow. As such, she had no husband or family member to support her or, or to go to. And widows in Israeli society were very much poor and almost defenceless. But, you know, what strikes us about this woman is her initiative, her, her competency, her determination, her persistence, her, her discipline to find justice. Now, now, she could have easily have just said, well, look, you know, I'll just bear my disappointment. I'll suffer the indignity of being robbed or defrauded or whatever the problem was. But, but she wasn't like that. She had a determination, a perseverance that really is quite remarkable. But she's a widow. She had none to please her cause. It was time to take the matter back to the judge. Now, we don't know the circumstances of the, of the case, but in some situations she was, as I said, robbed or defrauded or, or some 
So he was perpetrated against her that was totally unjust and she had no one to go to. So, so what is she going to do? Well, in verse 3, she came unto him. Now, unfortunately, the authorised version obscures the, the drama of that. The Greek is she was continually coming to him. In fact, that was the judge's complaint in verse 5, her continual coming. She was persistent to the point where she wanted this natural justice to eventuate. Her words were very simple in verse 3, avenge me of mine adversary. Actually, it's, the word avenge is too strong a word. It's not really talking about vengeance at all. Uh, the Greek word really means to vindicate one's right. She sought justice. She's not seeking revenge. She's just seeking natural justice. And the word adversary there is opponent at law. So there's been a court case. And the matter had come before this unjust judge and he was stalling. She was clearly in the right, but the judge would not rule against her adversary. You think, what, what kind of man is this? He's, he's lazy as well as perverting the cause of justice. And she's waiting for decision, and she's persistently, persistently coming to him, saying, vindicate me. Now, we don't know what was preventing him making that decision, but there was no sense of compassion to this woman. There was no sense of answering to a, a higher court. He just refused to make a decision on her behalf. This is the epitome of red tape bureaucracy no decision. And she knew she was right. And the judge knew she was right. But he's not going to make a decision on her behalf. Well, in verse 4, he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I fear not God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. So, so, so what kind of judge is this who knows it's his duty and responsibility to uphold some kind of justice, but he's flatly refusing to do so. But after a while, after a while, he's now reflecting inwardly. And, and look at his declaration in verse 4. Though I fear not God nor regard man, he has no hesitation in declaring the fact that he's not a believer in God, he's not subject to God's law, and he doesn't care about people. Now you imagine that. This is a self-proclamation by this man. He knows he's evil and he's comfortable with it. He's the worst possible human being you could ever bring your case before. Yet, because this widow troubleth me, it's all about me, I will vindicate her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Now, I, I'm sure we appreciate, brothers and sisters, that that concept in the Greek is, is quite significant, isn't it? The word weary there is to beat under the eye, to give a black eye. So here's this widow who continually comes to her and after every session he feels like he's been beaten around the bush by this woman. She'd been very direct and forthright. She knew what she wanted and in the end he felt like he'd gone around with her in the ring. Pummeled by her. And that consistency, that continual perseverance, in the end, won through. His motive was self-preservation. His motive was to get a bit of peace and quiet. 
His motive was to just get rid of her. Now, all of this stands, brothers and sisters, as an absolute contrast to Almighty God. In verse 6, the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. He was dishonest, he was corrupt, he was unjust, but listen to what he said. His viewpoint was, was to get peace and quiet from this woman and give her what she wanted. And in absolute contrast, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ draws this contrast with our heavenly Father in verse 7. Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I will tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. The judge was unjust to a fault. Our Heavenly Father is absolutely just. The judge didn't listen until he was provoked. God listens all the time. The judge had no regard for the widow. God always regards the plight of his people. And he will act when the time is right. The widow consistently, persistently, constantly prayed. And we too, Brennan, need to have that persistency as well, not to give up. The widow, constantly wearied by the judge, our heavenly father is not wearied by our prayers. She sought vindication from injustice. And we too seek vindication when our Lord comes, that he'll pronounce us right before him the judge will only vindicate out of self-interest God vindicates his people because he has called them and they are the elect and in the end if an unjust judge responds to the continual pleas out of self-interest how much more will our God respond out of compassion don't give up don't faint is the point of this parable. We may cry day and night, and, and in doing so, we, we emulate the example of, of Ezra, of Nehemiah, of, of, of David, who consistently cried day and night. Because you see, brothers and sisters, our Father is listening, and he is aware, and even though the time is not yet right to send his Son, he is not unmindful of our petitions. Do we believe that? Do we appreciate that? There's no outward visible sign. God is listening, is there? But he does. And our prayers can be in so many avenues. Not just for ourselves, but for others. You know, I've got a list here of, of the things that we can pray for. For men in authority for Israel, for the peace of Jerusalem, for laborers in his service, for the extension of the truth, for the conversion of all men, for those who hate us, for forgiveness and restoration before God, for the forgiveness of others, the strength in help in time of need, for development of godliness, for wisdom and spiritual understanding, for the spiritual and physical welfare of our brethren and sisters, 
for our own salvation, for the welfare of brethren sisters in other countries, for self-examination, for guidance during trial, for spiritual balance, for the blessings of providence, for our daily bread, and for God's coming kingdom when his will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. Those are just a few of the things that we can pray for. The, the breadth of that is immense. We have the challenge of making that a constant, ceaseless thing in our lives. And how much more, says our Lord, will God vindicate us, though he bear long with them? The revised version gives us a, a better understanding that he is long-suffering over them. And the very fact that our Lord is not in the earth is evidence of his long-suffering. As it was in the days of Noah, that long-suffering was there, brothers and sisters, to allow people to understand the gravity of the situation they were in, the nearness of that coming judgment, and to do something about it. And that long-suffering continues. We have young people getting baptised. We have interested friends being baptised. As the long-suffering of God continues to wait, all of those things occur. Though he is long-suffering over them. And when he does act, brethren and sisters, it will be done speedily. In an instant is the Greek. He'll wait and he'll wait and he'll wait. But when he intervenes in world affairs, it will be done speedily. Our Lord will suddenly be in the earth and we will stand before him to give account. The purpose of this parable is really an antidote against delay or perceived delay and waiting. In the end, brethren, it's as time unveils true character, doesn't it? I mean, the longer our Lord is not in the earth, then, then the more opportunity we have of either serving him or becoming disinterested. And time itself is a trial. And the antidote to that is to be persistent and faithful in that prayer. And the question he asks in verse 8, and he will only ask this question if it was a relevant question. Is he going to find in the Greek this faith on the earth when he comes? And the point of that parable, the point of that question is, is that we need to ask ourselves individually and collectively whether we have that faith, that kind of faith. Or are we giving up? Are we fainting? Are we becoming spiritually fatigued? Is it just too hard, too difficult? The passage of time reveals our faith. And the fact that the Lord asked that question is incredibly perceptive because when he does come, is he going to find that? And only we can answer that question to ourselves. Now, whilst he's on the subject of prayer... He continues in a second parable. How are we going to pray? With, with, with what disposition are we going to pray? What, what will be our motive in praying? Uh, will it be a prayer of self-justification or a prayer of humbly seeking God for that righteousness which he bestows? You know, the, the widow sought vindication, the widow sought justification, and the Lord is now going to take that subject and he's going to now talk about attitude in prayer. And, 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 and the next parable, brothers and sisters, addresses the fundamental question, how is one made right with God? 
How is one reconciled to God? How does one become at one with God? And it's not a new question. Job asked that question. How can man be right with God? And this parable supplies that answer. And it does, again, in such a, such a graphic way. And it was targeted, says verse 9, to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. This was not so much for the disciples, but for the Pharisees. But nevertheless, the lesson was very, very clear. It was a parable to educate and to warn. Trusting in one's self. Putting confidence in the flesh. Putting confidence in our own skill, our ability, our intelligence. Paul had to come to the realisation that he could put no confidence in the flesh. But, but there were some that felt that they were doing pretty good in the truth. They were pretty good. They were, in fact, doing so well that they had something to commend themselves to God. And this is one of the stumbling blocks of the Jewish people in seeking their own righteousness and seeking to vindicate themselves. Because what that does is, is, that, is that when you, when you have the holier-than-thou attitude, then immediately you begin to look at other people differently and you begin to despise them. And the Greek word means to set at naught. And there's the problem. When you elevate yourself, you do so at the expense of others. Now, the parable is graphic, isn't it? We have in verse 10 two men going up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. Do you know where this parable comes from? It comes from Zechariah chapter 7. I'd like you to come back to Zechariah chapter 7. There are two identities here, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. In the days of Zechariah, there were people going up to the temple to worship. Chapter 7 of Zechariah, verse 1, It came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Chislu. When they had sent unto the house of God, Shereza and Regamelech and their men to pray before Yahweh. Now, in actual fact, uh, that expression of the house of God is, is more correctly translated, Bethel. When Bethel had sent these two to pray before Yahweh. So, so we have a situation where men are going up to the temple to pray. And what were they praying about? Well, the question came on fasting. Now, isn't that interesting? Fasting was the subject of this prayer. You see, what had happened was, was that the Jews had imposed upon themselves a fasting regime to remember the fall of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And, of course, they're now in a dilemma because, you see, the house of God is being rebuilt. So if the temple's being rebuilt, the question comes, well, well should we be actually fasting for the destruction of the temple? That, that was the question. The question was about fasting. And what was God's answer? Verse 4, Then came the word of Yahweh of hosts to me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land, to the priests, saying, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did ye at all fast unto me, even to me? And when ye did eat and when you did drink, did you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? You see, they were praying. They were praying for themselves and praying for themselves. 
on the question of fasting. And God finally said in verse 8, this is what I want, to execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother, oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, stranger nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against your brother in your heart. You see, they were separating themselves, praying to themselves on the question of fasting, and that becomes the basis of the publican in the parable of Luke 18. So, sorry, the, the, uh, the Pharisee in, in Luke 18. The, the character of the publican is actually based on the life of Hezekiah. We're not going to deal with that particularly this morning. Although he was a king, he was despised and rejected of men. And the record says on a number of occasions that he went up to the house of God to pray and he prayed for God's salvation because he couldn't help himself in the matter of the Assyrian invasion. The basis of the parable is in the reality of Jewish worship. You see, each morning and evening there was a special ritual in which the burnt offering for the day and the incense was lit and early in the morning and at 3pm in the afternoon people streamed into the temple to pray all sorts of people on that occasion the sacrifice of the lambs was made, the continual burnt offering time of prayer that's when Reverend Zacharias went into the temple light the candles like the lampstands. And it's a time when the, the congregation itself, observing the sacrifice being uh, burnt and the, and the time of incense, drew close to personal prayer. And verse 11, Luke 18, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. That word stood has an Old Testament connection. It's, it's use of the priests standing before God in official capacity. But, but you see, the problem with this man is, is that the very standing was ostentatious. And very likely he chose a very visible spot, as close as he could possibly get to the, the holiness of the, of the temple itself. And he was there standing for all to see. Public display. His body language demonstrated his attitude. And his prayer was not directed to God, it was directed inwards to himself. The person he's addressing is not God. he become his own God. He was actually directing his prayer in a very self-congratulatory fashion. And that's pretty well indicated by his words. Five times he refers to himself in that prayer. Not a prayer to God. He gives God no praise. He asks nothing from God. He asks no mercy from God. He asks no forgiveness from God. He asks no help from God. Instead, he commends himself to God. God, he says. But, you know, there's, there's an appearance of godliness here. I thank thee. And, and, and we may pause there and think, well, here's a, a prayer of thanks. But as one commentator Reflected, never were words of thanksgiving spoken with less thankfulness than these. You see, they were boastful words. And I think what it demonstrates is the deceitfulness of the human heart that we can have a form of godliness, 
we can seek God in prayer, but we do so out of the most awful motives at times. His prayer is one of comparison. I thank thee that I am not as other men are. I am thankful that I'm not like the rest of men. His prayer was not about what God had done for him, but what God hadn't made him. Think about that. He was thankful that he was good enough to stand before God. I deserve to be here, he said. I've been called. I'm part of the chosen people. I'm a Christadelphian, we could say. I deserve to stand here. You know, sometimes we, we flatter ourselves that we're not quite as bad as some brethren and sisters. And sometimes we, we make that comparison. Well, I'm not doing too bad compared to brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. But you know, brethren and sisters, other people's failings do not impart any righteousness to us. And as he looked around, even though he was praying, he was looking at all the crowd across the courtyard there in the temple, and he was thankful that he was not like the extortioners, the unjust adulterers. And you can imagine him looking across and thinking, even like that publican, casting his eye around him and seeing that man. And you know, all of those were, were a swipe, weren't they, at the publicans and the harlots and the sinners. And last of the lift, this was that tax collector. They were the lowest of the low. And this was the disdain, the setting at naught. And when we start to compare ourselves with other people and see ourselves as better than other people, then that disdain comes into effect, doesn't it? And Jesus condemned that. He was clean and pure in his own eyes. Highly religious. But look at his religion. <coughs> Verse 12, I fast twice in the week and I give tithes of all that I possess. And that's it. That, that's that's the, the sum of his righteousness. This is what made up the man. He, he had a number of man-made rules and regulations that he was going to adhere to. And because he kept those, he thought he was doing pretty good in the truth. Pretty good before God. That's the sum total of his religion. No other commandments came to mind. He doesn't ask God for anything because... In his eyes, there's nothing he thinks he needs from God. What a tragic picture that is. Self-satisfied Christadelphian. In verse 13, our Lord turns to the other individual, the tax collector. And his body language also tells us an enormous amount about his disposition. He was standing afar off. That's where the Gentiles are. That's where the lepers are, far off. He was shunned by society around him. He was pushed to the edges of the temple. But he was a worshipper of God. You know, we're not talking about an irreligious man. We're not talking about a man who has no time for God. He wants to worship God. And he is braving the scorn of others to do so. He is a courageous man. but he's afar off. And the irony is, is he's closer to God than the, than the actual Pharisee was. He's accepted his position that society enforced upon him. He knows that he doesn't deserve to be in the presence of God. 
all the presence of his fellow Israelites. Yet he still wants to pray to God. He's a religious man. And the body language is very graphic, isn't it? He stands there and he would not lift up his eyes to heaven. He's ashamed to come in the presence of God. He's overwhelmed by his failures. He knows he's unworthy. And he feels the weight of his transgression. He wants to be right with God. He wants to worship God in spirit and in truth, but he feels the weight of his transgressions and an absolute unworthiness to stand before Almighty God. In fact, he despises himself, different to the Pharisee who despised others. The eyes of the Pharisee were casting dispersions across, even like this publican, but this man's eyes wouldn't even, even leave the ground. And more than that, brothers and sisters, he was beating his chest. Now, now, that is a remarkable thing when you think about it. According to Edersheim, putting your hands over your chest and bowing your eyes was a posture of humility, but this man goes beyond that. And, and there is no record in any of the Old Testament passages of a man beating their breasts. The only occasion of that is in the New Testament, when after the Jewish people had crucified their Lord, they smote their breasts... You think about that, the body language of that, pummeling himself almost, beating himself, bruising himself, this frustration with himself, acknowledging his weakness, broken with shame, crushed and humbled. And he's going to speak to God. God, exactly the same beginning as the Pharisee's prayer, God, be merciful to me. You know, the Pharisee spoke in the Greek, 29 Greek words, mostly about himself. This man speaks six Greek words. And the power of that expression is, is that that word merciful is not the normal use of the word mercy. You know, in verse 38, in our reading this morning, when the man said, have mercy on me, that's the normal word, have mercy. But, but the Lord throws in this special Greek word that comes out of the lips of this particular tax collector. And the Greek word is to make reconciliation. It's, it's, it's the word that is connected with the mercy seat, helesterion. It's not the normal word for mercy. It is, brethren and sisters, Reconcile me to thee. He, he has in mind the atoning work of, of God. He's seeing behind the ritual of the daily burnt offering and the offering of incense, he's seeing beyond the ritual to the real issue of atoning. He understood that God needed to provide a sacrifice. He understood that that perfect, perfect animal was a representation of of the perfection of the Son of God, morally. And he knew he could never attain to that. He understood that God was righteous in demanding the death of flesh. That God was righteous in all his ways. And, and getting all those principles together, he stood before God and said, reconcile me, make atonement for me, unite me. This man knew that any righteousness could only come from God, not himself. God, be merciful to me, 
a sinner. Now in the Greek it has the definite article, the sinner. The Pharisee thought others were sinners. The publican thinks of himself as the sinner. It's like Paul who said, I'm the chiefest of sinners. He's not comparing himself with other people. He's looking at himself. And that's the issue of this man's greatness, to examine ourselves. Don't worry about the person next to you. Don't compare. Don't set yourself above other people. He looked at himself. It was an honest, inward examination of self, the sinner. And I think as we stand before Almighty God, seeking to be made right with God, we understand, this is our real position before God. We are unworthy for the least of his mercies. And the importance of that confession is so significant. He seeks to forsake. He seeks to reconcile himself to God. He seeks, brothers and sisters, to undo all of those things that he's been doing, to change. And the Lord said in verse 14, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I tell you, you know, here's the authority of the Lord. You see, because this, this doctrine, this, this teaching cut across all of the religious theology of the day that God would impute righteousness by faith without works of law. And that doctrine laid the foundation for Paul's exposition in Romans. This is how man is made right with God. Not by commending oneself to God, but in humbly seeking mercy and forgiveness, understanding the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man. Now, it's interesting, the Lord added this phrase in verse 14. He said, this man went down to his house justified. We're talking about justification, being made righteous. Down to his house. When you look at that across the Old Testament, you, you find that when you go to the temple, you go up to worship. And when you go down to your house, it's, it's an expression used in the Old Testament of, of the expression of concluding the matter of returning to domestic responsibilities. Now, that wasn't said to the Pharisee. It's, it's, it's like the Lord leaves the Pharisee there, up on the Temple Mount, unsatisfied, unanswered. There's no closure in that kind of disposition. But this man, this man feels closure. This man feels the capacity that he has been heard, he has been justified, and God has been merciful and forgiven him. And therefore that concludes the matter. And he's able to go down to his house. That never happened to the Pharisee. Can't ever have closure with that disposition. I tell you, there's the authority of the Lord. This man is now forgiven and he's righteous. And that would have seemed absolutely outrageous to the religious leaders of the day. The unrighteous man who declared his unrighteousness, who sought forgiveness, is the one whom God justifies, not the man who keeps the fast and the tithing. You see, in the end, brothers and sisters, when we look at ourselves, is our religion a religion of self, of human worth, of human merit, of self-achievement, of being better than others? Or is it a religion of humble faith in what God has accomplished? An awareness of our unworthiness in so many ways. 
the Pharisee was self-righteous, he was aloof, he was contemptuous. He seeks no mercy, he seeks no grace, he seeks no forgiveness, he wants no sympathy, he is thankful that he's not unrighteous. We can't afford to have that kind of disposition. He exalted himself and the Lord said he will be abased. We need the disposition of understanding our true position and in that humility to approach almighty God seeking his goodness. We desperately need that forgiveness, that grace. We are distraught at our inability to be righteous. We are distraught at our failings day after day. But brothers and sisters, we have this confidence that we can seek God and be made right with God if we have that disposition. The parable of the unjust judge was that we would ceaselessly pray and not faint. Let's take that determination to heart. To be determined to constantly draw nigh to God, to be aware of his presence, to subject ourselves to the lens of that kind of perspective. And let's, brethren and sisters, in those very prayers, constantly, day by day, express that humility, our inability to achieve any sense of perfection, our unworthiness to stand before God. Let us pray, brothers and sisters, without ceasing. Thank you for listening to the Good Christadelphian Talks podcast. We hope this talk helped you in your walk. If you would like to hear more, please subscribe for new episodes and leave a review in Apple Podcast or whichever service you are using to help more people find the show when they search for it. If you enjoyed this particular talk, please share it with someone who you think might enjoy it as well. For show notes on the talk you just listened to, visit our show page at anchor.fm gct or check the show notes section of your podcast player. Please share your thoughts on the talk from this week on our Facebook or Instagram pages, where we are at Good Christadelphian Talks, on Twitter, where we are at GCT underscore podcast, or leave a comment on our YouTube channel where these talks are posted as well. If you know of a great talk, we want to know about it too. Send a suggestion to our email at goodchristadelphiantalks at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media accounts. Thank you for listening. God bless and talk to you next week.